Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Alina Holy, who is the Producing Artistic Director of the New York Fringe Festival. And I'm going to read, uh, uh, Alina, from your website exactly what the New York International Fringe Festival, subtitled Fringe NYC, is. It's more than 200 companies from all over the world performing for 16 days in more than 20 venues. That's a total, you say on your website, of more than 1,300 performances. Fringe NYC generates an atmosphere of extreme excitement, and our energy is contagious, your own words. That's true. But Howard is bursting with his own (laughs) excitement and energy. Well, my, my first question is very simply for the listeners. What makes something fringe? Well, I think there is a certain intangible quality that um, that comes up during the adjudication process. We are an adjudicated festival, and we look for three different things, and that's innovation, and that's an emerging artist, someone who's n- sort of looking for their first shot, and also a career artist who's trying something new. And we look for diversity, cultural diversity, geographic diversity, so that we have international and national and local participants, um, and vibrancy. And that's the really, that's the part that if I could articulate it, um, we'd be, we'd be uh, further down the road. But it's, it's that passion from the young artist. Um, we sort of pride ourselves on the fact that someone doesn't need to have a lengthy resume or bio or have a history of producing in New York or elsewhere. But if they have a passionate cover letter about why they want to produce this piece, why at Fringe NYC in this particular year, then, um, then they can be a part of this festival. Now, the festival has a number of different aspects to it that are not necessarily theater per se. So we're just really kind of talking about the theater aspect. Right. How many shows this year do you have going at any given moment throughout the two weeks of the festival? Well, it is 1,300 performances. It can be up to 120 or 130 performances per day. Every one of our shows is assigned to a particular venue, and they perform on a rotating basis. So we have performances from 3 p.m. to midnight on weekdays, noon to midnight on weekends. Um, and we have people right now at Fringe Central purchasing their pass and getting ready. They walk in with their Excel spreadsheet, you know, (laughs) having planned out their entire 16 days, so it's really exciting. And, in fact, each of these shows is getting perhaps a half a dozen performances over the the course of the festival. So what's fascinating to me is you have this this endless list of work, 194 different shows, and how do people choose? Now, the press seems to have gotten very fixated on the titles. Well, and yes, and then they, the, well, what else, what else is there before someone has performed, in fact? So, so you end up with shows, now I'm, I'm reading that uh, both the, the, the New York Post, the New York Daily News, and New York Magazine were all very intrigued by Die, Die, Diana, a musical. Uh, the Post, the News, and the Times were fascinated by, uh, interested in Dog Sees God. Yes. Um, do people end up crafting titles in order to catch your attention or in order to catch the audience's attention? Or is this really ingrained in the work that they're creating? You know, I think that probably several years ago, that was um, a trend among our applicants and among our participants. But I think we've sort of moved past that now. I think that, um, you know, one of our goals is to train young producers. Um, we when they're accepted to the festival, they get this enormous participants manual that takes them step by step how to make their show happen. And um, 
and we've sort of trained them that accuracy and honesty is more important than anything. Die, Die, Diana is a fitting title for that musical. And and tell us what that musical is. Well, that musical is about um, about being famous and about uh, the penchant for our society to create icons and how... Um, you know, you can make sort of a blasphemous reference to Mother Teresa, but say something bad about the Princess of Wales, and there's you know a huge outcry in this country. And so, um, so, so that's a, a a title on purpose. You know, interestingly, in your brochure, that is accompanied by a picture of Yoda. Yes, I think is, that's that a, a reference to or? the Queen Mother, actually, that mm. they've made. Yes, um, which I, won't, of course, won't comment on. But, um, but you know, it's interesting. I think beyond the title, what happens is our audience um, goes on our website. They use this searchable database that we created that lets them search by genre, um, by title, by director, by writer, by date, time, venue, or any combination thereof. And that lets them find the show that they think is the perfect show for them. And then they come to French Central, they purchase tickets, or um, they go to the concierge desk at French Central. And it's amazing because before they know it, they thought they were coming downtown to see one show, and they find themselves pouring on the, over the program guide with a complete stranger in line. And before they know it, they've bought a pass, and they're just bopping around from theater to theater. And a, and a majority of our audience um, has never been to downtown theater before. And so they kind of get swept up in it. What, what, what is the, the process for a show being included in the festival? Can anybody be included? Do you have to meet rigorous standards? Uh, you have to apply. Uh-huh. Um, the application deadline for national folks is uh, always Valentine's Day. It's a February 14th postmark. This year we got 800 applications. Um, they actually fill out the application online and then send in the relevant support materials depending on what genre it's in. And then we have about 80 adjudicators and a panel panel of eight that um, that review everything. And the adjudicators are looking based on aesthetics, and then the panel represent what we call stated objectives. You know, um, we have a panelist who, who makes rep- up that panel. Well, it's both peer artists, it's artistic directors of other theater companies, and it's representatives of our audience. It's scientists, doctors, attorneys, you know, um, it's... Even the panel and the adjudicators themselves are as diverse as possible, hmm. and people are grouped together in diverse groups, so that if someone doesn't particularly care for that brand of dance, but it speaks to another uh, adjudicator, then you know there's a balance there. And these are all new works, or are some of the works that have existed elsewhere? There are. There's a mix of that. It's primarily new work, mm-hmm. or someone doing something new. For instance, uh, the Athel Fugard play, Statements Made After an Arrest on... Under the Immorality uh, Act. Thank you very much, Howard. Um, I think I'm pretty sure I said Immortality Act on another occasion, which is not right. But um, that's, you know, that's a, a play that's been done. Obviously, it um, was written in the apartheid era. But it speaks to us these days, particularly in this country. Um, the issues became suddenly relevant and, and colored in a different way, and we thought that was important to have included. So, um, so it's also classics being done in a new way. Um, but it's that vibrancy, that passion, that there has to be a reason behind uh, doing something that's been produced before. And when you talk about new, 
I'm curious as to how much of this work is actually being produced for the first time mm -hmm. for the festival or how much of it is work that's been done in smaller venues around the country that's being brought in. Right. I think we're probably still at about 80% first productions. Um, it, whether, you know, pe people have to define it and tell us whether it's a world premiere or a national premiere um, or a local premiere, but we have a lot of world premiere plays or at least productions being done at this festival, um, which is really exciting. You know, it's the, it's for on some occasions, the applicant is a playwright, and when they're accepted, they form a company. You know, they, they, ask friends and family and they, they get taken through this process and um, it's it's kind of a journey for them and um, it's one of those things where the journey is as rewarding as the and as the end goal being a, just being a part of this community and I love it when a playwright meets a director at the festival and then the following year we get an application from them that's a collaborative effort that's incredibly rewarding are there um times that are set up within the festival for that purpose, for people to meet? In other words, outside of the shows themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, um, we really are focused on creating this community. What we found when we started the festival was that there were people working in downtown theaters merely a block and a half away from each other who had never met, mm -hmm. you know, and they were obviously facing a lot of the same challenges. So we set up opportunities like that. In addition to these 1,300 performances at these 20 venues downtown, we also have Fringe Al Fresco, which is free outdoor performances, one of which is called Previews in the Park Plus, where our audience can go and see five-minute excerpts of shows. Then we have Fringe Club, which is a place for audience and artists alike to hang out, have a beer, talk about the work that they just saw. So that's like like a social event as it opposed is. to a performance. Exactly. It's a place, um, you know, it sort of ver moves from bar to bar or club mm -hmm. to club downtown. So, and, you know, those opportunities are rare. And, um, and yet the kind of work that we do and the atmosphere that we create lends itself to people wanting to hang out and actually get to discuss what they just saw. Now, I think it's probably interesting to, um, to point out that although this is called the New York festival mm -hmm. it's international you don't have to be from new york to be part of it in fact i would assume most of your people are not from new york Is that well right? i think we're about 70 percent local which we define oh, as tri-state area new york new jersey, new jersey Connecticut. Connecticut. right exactly and we include philadelphia and in that also but um but we do have internationals coming despite the increasing challenges getting them into the country on um on visas and everything um we've managed to do that we have a dance company coming from cyprus this year wow. which is a first-time country for us um where modern dance is just now sort of coming to the forefront so that's that's incredibly entertaining well other than the new york tri-state area is your one area of the united states where you get a significant number of, of contributions um you know it varies uh greatly and i ha i should mention that for the first four or five years of the festival we actually got more international applications than we did national hmm. and i'm certain that that's because fringe festival has a much longer history particularly in you know in europe um the fringe festival the edinburgh festival mm -hmm. fringe was celebrating their 50th anniversary when we started so um but that has changed in the last couple of years and i think it probably has something to do with a little musical called you're in town being mm -hmm. on national tour currently because that you know everywhere that they go sort of helps spread the reputation of the festival 
which emerged from the festival, obviously. It did, yeah. It was in the 99 festival, and then they did the off-Broadway, and then uh, went, won two, three Tony Awards. I almost shorted them one, won three <laughs> Tony Awards, and then now they're on national tour. It would most likely still be playing if they weren't tearing down the theater that it was in. Yes, it was a shame, but we, um, you know, we see that they're setting up sort of sit-down productions around the world, which makes us really happy. Well, this seems then the appropriate moment. We did want to play a little music that's come out of the Fringe Festival, so we thought we'd play a track off of You're in Town and uh, Run Freedom Run. Oh, fabulous. The uh, second act uh, spoof of great uh, gospel number coming out of the clear blue in the midst of the squalor of You're in Town. Although I was kind of lobbying for Don't Be the Bunny, (laughs) which I particularly like. Which has a lesson to teach us all. But Run Freedom Run will get people up. Okay, <laughs> Run Freedom Run from Town by way of the New York International French Festival. Music from Town, which is a notable success, obviously, of the festival. How, how did you guys get going? Now, you mentioned that the Edinburgh Festival has been around for half a century. It has, and had at that time. We were a small theater producing organization, and in fact still are, at the no. present company. Who, who, was, who was we? The present company. Uh-huh. Um, like many young theater companies starting out, a group of friends who want to make their own theater, work their day jobs, and then nights and weekends put together uh, performances, productions. And you were based in New York? Yeah. Yes, and um, at the time, my day job was as Richard Frankel's assistant at Richard Frankel oh. Productions, commercial theater producer. Producers of the producers and exactly. Hairspray for our yes. listeners. Yes, and I was there during the Smokey Joe's Cafe and Stomp and those uh-huh. days and, and for about seven years. So my day job was in commercial theater, and then nights and weekends was spent at this small not-for-profit. And we had a show called Americana Absurdum written by a, a playwright named Brian Parks. And it achieved some level of recognition, which when you're working off-off-Broadway is pretty rare, um, pretty hard to come by. And everyone's immediate reaction are peer theater companies, even folks in the commercial theater world, was that you sh- it's great, you should take it to Edinburgh. So I started crunching numbers what it would take to get 12 of us to Scotland. And at that point, it was the equivalent of our annual budget. It was incredibly prohibitive. It wasn't going to happen, much less taking off the time from all of our day jobs at the time. So our founding artistic director, John Clancy, said, well, why isn't there a Fringe Festival here in New York? And I call it like the great head thunker. You know, we all went, wait a minute, that's what we should be doing. Kind of like, duh, why didn't anybody think of this? Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, right time, it was an idea whose time had come. what, what, What year was this? This was in 96, Uh early 96, and um, almost exactly a year before we thought we wanted to schedule the first festival, we had a little, honestly, a sentence in backstage that we were holding what we called a town meeting for the first annual, you can tell we were young, that was nervy, I thought, first annual New York International Fringe Festival, and I was there, I had a clipboard, we tried to, the four or five of us who had gathered to try and make this happen, you know, looked like we knew what we were doing, and we stopped signing people in at about 350, 
Wow. wow. So that was really a mandate from our community that this was a good idea. And at that town meeting, someone stood up and said, if you're going to have all these artists gathered, it would be great to have a, a place where we could hang out socially and talk about the work. And that was Fringe Club, you know, being born. And um, someone else said you should have panels and lectures and that kind of thing. And we said, great, could you be in charge of that? And that became Fringe U. So a lot of our original staff came from that first town meeting. And, you know, we had this point we have people who still take their two-week vacation from their jobs so that they can be there every day at the festival as a volunteer staff person. Now, yep. That was 1996. Yeah. When did you quit your day job? Well, <laughs> Richard Frankel, um, mentor and, um, and fabulous man, gave me the month of August off uh-huh. uh, the first two years of the festival. So I continued to be his assistant through the 98 festival, and then it was time to make what became sort of a heartbreaking decision, but I had to do one or the other. And now, so. th- now this is your day job. This is my day job, yes. Um, it's kind of an inverted pyramid at um, at the present company and, and as producers of Fringe NYC because we have this audience of 50,000 people. Mm. We do 1,300 performances. We have 500 volunteers. It's 200 shows and 20 theaters, and we have two staff people. Wow. (laughs) So it really is this extraordinary collaboration of um, an enormous team of wonderfully talented volunteers, many of whom um, have really taken ownership in the festival, as have many New Yorkers. So in the growth from how many performances did you have that first year into what you've grown into now, because surely it didn't. Even even with 350 people showing up the town meeting, right? What what kind of scale you? Well, what's from? interesting is our original intention was 100 shows in 10 venues, um, but you know this is New York City, and I think each festival sort of needs to define what they need to do. And in this case. We thought we had to make it so big that people couldn't ignore it. Hmm. You know, we planned for everything, including that we would receive no media coverage, so we published our own daily newspaper and and all those things. And we've been really blessed that the media has um, paid attention to us. But I, I, I don't know that they would have had we only been doing 100 sure. shows. But you also picked the right time of year when things are quiet and you're yes. not competing. I'm curious also because you, in the case of all of these shows – they're produced on relative shoestrings. Mm-hmm. I guess each each group decides how much they want to spend, but obviously their ability to recoup any money from ticket sales, I assume, is fairly minimal. It is. But what does it cost to do the overall festival, even with the idea that each of the groups are essentially self-producing? They are. You know, one of the things about having that many groups is we've been able to sort of bulk buy. We do a lot of trade and, and get them deals on everything from printing postcards to insurance. When each company is accepted to the festival, they pay $500. That's their participation fee. And that gets them the venue, which is fully staffed. We run all the box office, online ticketing sales, the program guide, plus this, you know, step-by-step producing training. But um, so that all adds up to hundred grand. And our festival budget this year is about $270,000. Before, Pace University very generously stepped forward and um, is essentially the first enormous corporate sponsor because they've made available to us these four lovely venues. Um, And we figured out the math to find out at what level they were sponsoring us, and it's about $270,000 worth of venues. So in in essence, they've more than doubled our budget, but it's in in kind. As much has been made in in the press this year about the fact that for the first time, all of your venues are air-conditioned. I mean, for those (laughs) 
those for those who hear the phrase off off Broadway and remember the the 1950s stereotype of no air conditioning and walking across the stage if you have to go to the bathroom yes. um you've upgraded a bit what's been the effect of the success do you think you've certainly you've had shows go to Broadway mm-hmm. um from what was complete unknown you now have actors turning up and writers turning up who are not mm-hmm. unknowns is that changing the face of the festival? You know, I think that's one of our greatest challenges. Um, we get compared to uh, other festivals that have seen enormous success. Um, and I think one of our challenges is to sort of maintain the spirit of this festival. But that starts in February from the adjudication process and then the town meeting of the participants. And um, we really find that the people who are in the festival are there for the right reasons. You know, some of our participants absolutely have Broadway or film or television aspirations. But what makes this festival so wonderful is that you can have this really fully produced, commercially viable musical playing at a theater downstairs. And then upstairs, there's someone from South America wrapped in, wrapping themselves in saran wrap doing this outrageous performance art piece. Should we ask the name of that piece? Well, that's not this year, <laughs> but I have strong recollections of that show. But, um, but you know, Fringe NYC is about that mix and about those people meeting each other potentially working together in the future and about um, everyone coming together to sort of be a part of something. We're really lucky that we have um, Broadway stars and television stars that want to come and be a part of this festival. We don't know that when we adjudicate because they haven't cast their shows yet. But what I've come to determine is that um, the reason that those folks want to be a part of Fringe NYC is because it's fun. You know, for a lot of them, it's like a, it's like theater camp. You know, it's a chance to get to do something new um, for a short period of time. So they're usually available. So um, that's great. And I think it's a it's sort of a credit to the work of all of these volunteers creating this atmosphere um, to make them enjoy that. Now, you've, in this discussion today, we've used the word edgy and kind of, you know, different and that kind of thing more than once. Certainly, your in town was considered kind of different and kind of edgy for right. a Broadway show. Another one comes to mind that was also a success coming from the festival. I think it was the, the 2001 festival, Debbie Does Dallas. That's right. That's right. You know, um, we really do have all different kinds of things. And so I got to tell you, when we got the application from this young woman saying, I have the live stage rights to Debbie Does Dallas, I thought, okay, now I really have seen it all. I I keep thinking I'll stop saying that at some point. But but it was an extraordinary idea. You know, it was a great idea, and it was well executed. And um, interestingly enough, the— Since many people didn't see it, can you just explain what— what it was actually well, on stage. It was based on the movie. It was it was line for line the movie when it started. Yeah. And um and it you know, they added music and songs and it's the characters from this you know, from this porno film of which everyone's familiar with at least the title, you mm-hmm. know, or maybe they want a bit more, but at least people <laughs> have heard the title. And, you know, it follows this young woman's story and um and it was just it was hilarious. It was great at the festival, perfect festival show. And then it, uh, we got to watch it sort of bloom into an off-Broadway show, which um, needed to be something different. And I thought both were fabulous. And there are some elements that are definitely X-rated. 
There are. Yeah, it was pushing, sort of pushing the envelope for the usual musical theater piece, mm. particularly, you know. Um, was it X-rated in the festival? Would you say? I mean, well, you know, I don't know term. where that line is drawn. There uh-huh. was, there was, of course, nothing that's illegal uh, to be done on stage, um, but um, it, you know, it was really more fun and campy. Yeah, um, but some pretty strong language in the situation. Some pretty strong language. Some, um, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> I won't finish. Well, that as sentence. I always understood it, it was it was an adaptation of the movie without the sex. That's it. So the songs it was everything replaced but the, the sex. sex. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. So what I, the songs replace the sex as as they do so often in musical comedy. <laughs> and, so and, not so far fetched. And, and there are some songs that uh, have some racy lyrics, but there is one song which I think is very pretty and. Even kids can listen to the song. It's, yes. it's a G-rated song, put it okay. that way, which I guess came kind of close to the end of the show. I think that's right. Yes, um, it was a wonderful production, and um, and you know, again, talented young composer and writer. Well, I'd like to play the song. It's called uh, "Where I Need to Go." It's parentheses Debbie's theme, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess the actress that played Debbie sang the song. That's right. Where I Need to Go, Debbie's theme from Debbie Does Dallas. Who who was that singing? Off-Broadway, it was Sherry Renee Scott. Um, Had she been in Aida? She had been in Aida for a long time, and I'm certain that she has um, quite a few credits. Um, It was interesting because they actually took the show from the festival and went into workshop, you know, because, like we said, something that uh, is fit perhaps for the under the auspices of the festival um, sometimes needs to bloom and grow into something different or larger for an off-Broadway stage. So um, it was great to watch that journey, too. Now, it's a a few months until um, Valentine's Day, which is the deadline (laughs) for next year's festival. That's right. If I were anywhere in the world and I wanted to apply, what would I have to be thinking about right about now between uh, over the next six months? Well, what should I be doing? Um, you know, it's always a great idea to browse fringenyc.org and look at the kind of work that's being um, presented as part of the festival. Uh, it gives you kind of a sense of what the festival is and what our goals are and what you'd want to be a part of if you were applying. And in fact, we actually keep last year's applicant information up there so that people can at least get that information at any time. And can people reapply if they don't make the cut one year? Can they send the Absolutely. same idea the next year? Absolutely. You know, the number of applications, of course, in the what we call the PU era, which is the post-Urinetown era, <laughs> has been... I love that. I love yes, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it, they, they've just skyrocketed. So um, staying true to those sort of three key elements of innovation, vibrancy, and diversity. And people choose an adjudication category now. So they can be applying as a puppet show or as a musical, as a drama, comedy. But we do have an adjudication category that's undefined because... There are things that are undefined. For instance, we have um, Harvey Finkelstein's Sock Puppet Showgirls. It, the, I guess the inheritor of the Debbie Does Dallas uh-huh. fame, it's, 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 um, it's the movie Showgirls being performed by Sock Puppets. So although and again, they cleared the rights for that. Absolutely. Paul Verhoeven yeah. and, and I, Joe Esther Haas said, Well, okay. I think this one technically falls under the parody ah. uh, allowance. Um, but, but, yeah, it, and it's hilarious. You know... Doing the production of Showgirls might not have caught our attention. 
a sock puppet show might not have caught our attention, but a sock but puppet showgirls, that's a winner. <laughs> it's like Reese's <laughs> Peanut Butter Cups, two unexpected things together. In in looking at the listings, and you mentioned the website mm-hmm. uh, before, and I think for those people who can't get there this year, they, they, they can really be entertained just reading through all of the ideas that, that were out there. I had gotten a call at the wing uh, last week from a reporter who wanted to talk about the plethora of political content. Mm. And it's funny because going through this brochure, I'm not so sure that it was politically geared, but has anything come of the fact that you have the festival this year in such close proximity to the Republican National Convention? We, you know, we are the 16 days prior. We close on Sunday the 29th and the convention starts on the 30th. And thus our marketing tagline this year is defying convention, which is true on many levels. But, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't say it was specifically political work that we saw applying this year, but there was definitely a lot of folks who were telling their story, um, who had something important to say, get some factual information out there, address an issue. But what's interesting about them is even the most personal stories in the festival, in a broader sense, sort of are relevant to us all. One that comes to mind is a play called Hanging Chad. And it's about this young man who, you know, never regretted moving to Florida from Harlem until he was disenfranchised in the last election. So it's so interesting because we talk about these concepts of not having your vote counted, but he takes you through what happened to him, you know, and we thought, well, that's information that we should be getting out there in this, you know, in, in the the days prior to the to the election. So now in the midst of all this, do you get to see much of this, all of this? What's going on with 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 Alina Holy during, well, during this festival? Um, probably more than you'd want to know the intricacies of producing something this big. Um, but uh, I do, I do get out to see the work. It usually doesn't happen the first weekend of the festival. Right now, as I'm having this lovely experience talking to you gentlemen, we have a full production staff and venue directors teching shows in 20 theaters getting ready to open tomorrow. So um, so there is sort of the mechanics of just keeping this big beast running. Last year, just when things had sort of settled down and we were, I was about to actually get to go out and see some stuff, the lights went out, which we're actually, we're sitting here on the one-year anniversary, as Howard mentioned earlier, so I'm, you know, sort of knocking on your table. But, um, and you're opening on Friday the 13th. We the are. Well, well, the lights went out last year. I figured what could happen, well, yeah. you know. <laughs> Where could so, it go from here? Exactly. So, um, so you know, there there's uh, obviously a lot of, um, you know, ticket printing and, and uh answering phone calls and and online stuff and and technology has really helped us particularly over the last four years you know putting a participants manual in the mail to someone in Australia has turned into uh, please go to our website and download so uh, which is free <laughs> so um, so we are really lucky that both technology has become affordable and come up with us and that frankly a lot of our volunteers are people who are dot commerce during the day who want to apply their skills to something like this well alina um we are chatting here on the eve of the opening of mm-hmm. of your your festival however our listeners are listening to it in real time now about a week into the festival okay if, so how's it going <laughs> <laughs> if they want to come and see a show now assuming that it's not sold out how how does one at this date now get to see a show? The best way is to go to fringenyc.org. We have an alphabetical listing of every show, 
and you can actually purchase tickets right there through the website. It's really simple. That's and fringe, top ticket fringe price N- is Fringe NYC, as in New York City. Fringe right, NYC. Right. Exactly. We, our, our full name is the New York International Fringe Festival. That's the Elizabeths of our name. Right. Fringe NYC is our nickname. It's our Betty. Right. So um, yeah, FringeNYC.org, and our shows are fifteen dollars. So, um, and they're actually cheaper if you buy in bulk. So if you buy one of our passes, which is usually what happens, you know, people people think they're coming to see one show, and before they know it, fourteen days later they wake up in a theater downtown. And do, do you have any diehards who are like trying to see and who sit and strategize and each year come and want to maximize? We have lunatic passes. And it's five hundred dollars for as many shows as you want to see, and they are they they are in competition. And with what's each other. the most you can actually see? I think the think? most is a hundred and twenty. Maeve Brennan, our original lunatic, uh, I think did a hundred and twenty something one year. So um, you know, carefully plotting and planning and getting your schedule done, and you can do it. So. And if if our listeners uh, don't recall the website fringenyc.org, you always Google it under New York Fringe. That's and right. Google will direct you right to the site. Yes, you right. you come right up. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Well, Alina Holy, who is the uh, producing artistic director of the New York Fringe Festival, thank you so much for being with us today. And Thanks for having me. As I say, break a leg <laughs> with the festival this year, <laughs> thank you. and we look forward to seeing you again. Great. For Downstage Center, I'm John von Susten, and with the last word. And I'm Howard Sherman of the American Theatre Wing. Uh, I just want to mention that all of the interviews on Downstage Center are available to listen to on demand at the American Theatre Wing's website, www.thewing.org, along with more than 150 hours of free multimedia about the art, the craft, and even the business of theatre. Thanks for being with us today on and, Downstage Center. And I just would like to add that uh, your website is a terrific resource. For anybody interested in the theatre, please visit the Theatre Wing's website. Again, give the... Uh, the Thanks. Very easy, www.thewing.org, or if you prefer the formal name, www.americantheaterwing.org. And to echo Howard, thank you.